The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. What a wonderful hymn to sing in the song. And that is, that is the hope of the gospel. That it's sweetness within the ears of those who hear, of those who come near to Christ, that He calms you, that He In Him, you find your fears subsiding. You find in Him rest. You find that flourishing and that peace and the joy and the hope and the love that we've been talking about over the last several weeks together. That it comes through and in the person of Jesus Christ that we find Him. And this morning, as we come to the end of uh, this year together... I can't believe another year is ending, that we're flipping the calendar, that 2016 is this week, and that we look forward with hope and expectation. And so often, I find myself and we find ourselves thinking that somehow there's magic this week, that because a calendar designed by people years ago turns and tells us that it's a new year, that things are going to be different. And then oftentimes what we find is we're disappointed because things haven't changed. And I believe so often in my life and in the life of so many that the reason that we are disappointed is that we have placed our hope in the wrong things. Instead of placing our hope in God who is firm and he is in next year already. You realize that this is what the scriptures say. That we trust in God's hand for he who has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in. That he who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. The one who has counted our steps, who has laid them out. That he has already set and determined what 2016 looks like for you. Do you realize that? Do you? If we had people sitting in this section, maybe I could hear you. And so, uh, these are good seats, by the way. Um, They're not that expensive. Uh, But but God has got it for you for next year. And the beauty of that comes. And not that now you're going, oh, well, this is just sort of determinism, and it's all set for me, and I'm just a robot and a pawn in his great scheme. No, it gives you great confidence to live your life with incredible boldness and freedom. To know that you can live and that you can move and you can breathe and you can do all of these things within the sovereign hand of God who is good, who is trustworthy, who is faithful to his promises and who basically says to you, relax, I've got you. You don't have to keep working so hard. You don't have to keep sweating so much. I've got you. I'm reigning. I'm ruling. You're in my kingdom. Trust me and trust my reign. But here's the problem that we run into in the passage that was read from Zechariah chapter 9. We realize this, that there is a king who has come and is coming again, Christ Jesus. And he is going and is ruling and is going to rule fully. And what we find the problem to be in our lives so often is that we're already serving another king and we don't want his kingdom. 
We're already well established within the kingdom of something or someone else because here's, what, uh, here's how the Bible talks about an anthropology, a, a biblical understanding of mankind. You were designed to be ruled. You were designed to be ruled by someone or something. And the scriptures speak regularly uh, that a fool is one who doesn't ask questions. That a fool just accepts his or her lot in life and just goes blindly on, wondering why things continue to happen. But the wise person asks questions, is perceptive, and looks in. And so if the reality and truth is that you're being ruled, you were designed to be ruled by something, the wise person asks this question, what's ruling me? What's ruling me? What is it that I have bound myself to and has bound uh, to me? and is guiding and directing me, and that I am serving at all costs. And the answer is different for each of you. There may be larger, broad categories that are the same, but at the end of the day, they're different for you. Maybe it's your serving beauty and the aesthetic of looks. Maybe you're serving power. Maybe you're serving something else other than that, but you're serving something People regularly tell you if you're a Christian and you begin to talk to them and you try to speak uh, to them about your faith, uh, oftentimes the rebuttal and the response is this, well, I'm not a religious person. I'm just not religious. Interesting, that's a false statement because the word religion is hard to find its original form, uh, but many believe that it comes from a Latin construct that means to be bounded to. And that to be religious means to be bound to something. And what we know about all of humanity is all of humanity, every individual, every single one of you that's sitting here this morning, you're bound to something. You're serving something. You have a set of rules and regulations. You have a worldview that is established and placed, and you are living according to that. And so you're bound in the midst of it. And so the question becomes, who are you serving? What are you serving? And is that kingdom a good kingdom for you? And for most of us, we would realize that it's not that we find ourselves lost, that we find our enemies so strong against us that we can't break free from them no matter what. We simply say that I'm just going to change, I'm just going to do this, and things never seem to change. We don't have enough within ourselves to break free of the bonds that have us. Well, you see, Zechariah's prophecy is written to a people just like us. I love history. I love reading and studying all of the different time periods within history of seeing the stories of nations and of individuals and of peoples growing and moving and the movements of those things. One of my sons introduced me to Ancestry.com and I find it to be one of the most addictive things that you could ever be introduced to. Because you're fascinated by, oh, through this person I'm related to this person and then you can actually see documents. And then you realize what was happening in Scotland in the 1850s and then what was moving into Scotland in the, 18, in, the, in the 1500s, in the 1400s and seeing the movements and you're fascinated by it all. And you begin to see the pictures and know why people moved as they moved and why things were happening. Well, if that's true in our human history just in Ancestry.com, how much more is it true in our history biblically speaking? Because the people of Israel, that's your story. Those are your people the people of God. And if you'll afford me a moment to give you a history lesson, this is what had happened. There was this people who were not that special in the world. And God decided, 
and said, you're going to be my people and I'm going to be your God. And he said, I'm going to rule you and I'm going to reign and I'm going to care for you and govern you. But the people didn't like that. And they wanted to be like all the other nations around and they wanted a king. And God said, you don't need a king. I'm your king. Just follow me. And they said, we demand a king. And so a king was put into place. Saul was the first of them. And a whole line of kings ever since. And though there were some good kings, at the end of the day, all of the kings served their own, served their own desires. The people of Israel in this small little nation that had found favor with God for no particular reason other than his beautiful choice and grace. They began to rebel. He said, but you're supposed to worship me only, not anybody else. You're not supposed to look like all the other pagan uh, religions around you. You're not supposed to sacrifice your children to Molech and to place them on his lap and to burn them alive and to go and to try to get the Asherah and to try to get the Baal to have relationships together and so that you're going to go into the temples and you're going to have these type of prostitutions and all sorts of abominations going on within this and so you can get your crops to go. You're to serve me and to pray for, to me, the God of all of creation, and I will bless your crops. I will bless you. I'll protect you. You don't have to have all the other stuff, but the people wanted everything. And by the end of the day, they'd rejected God outright or so intermingled the faith uh, of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, with every other pagan God that was there. It was so synchronized and messed up that God finally said to them what he says to us so often. He said to them, if you really want to live your life without my rule, fine. I'll let you. I'll let you do that. I'm going to remove my hand from you. And you can try to stand up against Assyria and Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and Artaxerxes. You can try to stand up against all of them because what you're going to find out, Israel, is this. You're not all that special. You don't have enough capacity within yourselves to withstand the onslaught of the enemies who hate you and want to destroy you. And what Israel found was that their walls were torn down, that their crops were decimated, that their temple where they worshiped God, was obliterated and pillaged, that the best of the best of them was sent off, Daniel and all the others sent off to Babylon and to other places, and here they were, in all of their freedom, serving all the gods that they wanted to because they hated the rule of God himself. In all of them freedom, in all of their freedom, they found themselves absolutely in bondage. That's where they are in Zechariah. And the people finally, turned to God because he was loving enough to allow them to be brought to their knees. Do you realize that? That sometimes it is the most loving thing of a parent, the most loving thing for you to do, the ones you love, to allow them to run their course and to finally come to a place where they look back and go, wow, what I had at home was pretty doggone good. And they come back in repentance and contrition and humility and they come back and that's finally where the people of Israel had gotten. Does that sound anything like your life? That maybe in your life, your walls, you don't have walls, but the walls of your world have just been torn down. That you feel and been buffeted by whatever attacks have been coming on. That you look and you work and you work and you work and you read the prophet Zechariah or you read the prophet Haggai and you go, my goodness, I'm working so hard and there's never enough. I reach my hand into my purse and it's as if there's a hole in the bottom of my purse. I go into my storehouses and they've been eaten up 
uh, with moth and with worm, uh, that I try to get drunk and it doesn't ever satisfy me. I try to eat until I'm full and I'm hungry again. I try to go pursue every kind of sensuality that's in the world that's out there and I've run after them and I've run after them and I've run after them. And you know what I find out? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. There's nothing new under the sun. That's where the people of God were found. And that's where some of you today have found yourselves. And what you need to hear is this incredible declaration. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O child and daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. You who have rejected him, you who didn't want him, you have gone after other kings, you who have pursued and prostituted yourselves after every other god that's out there, this king is coming back to you. He is going to reintroduce himself to you. And what we should be feeling, what I would feel at that moment, if I got a letter from my dad after knowing that I'd rebelled against him, that I was doing all of this about him, and all of a sudden I got a letter from my dad that says, hey, little man, your dad is coming. I'd be a little worried. But that's not what this says. It says rejoice for your king is coming. So what we're going to do in the few minutes that we have together today is simply this. We're going to introduce this king to you. For some of you, you need to be reintroduced to him. For you've lost the picture of this king. It's gotten torn apart. It looks a bit like a Picasso in your mind. And you've lost the beauty and the magnificence and the majesty and all of it brought together. And I want us to know that we celebrated the birth of this king And at Easter, we celebrate the victory of the king over sin and death. And that one day, this king is coming back again. And we'll celebrate his coming back when that point, he makes all things right and new. Let's ask God's blessing on this time together. Father, now in these moments that we have, would you bless us? These are eternal things that we discuss. These are profound. And a fool in his folly will not plumb the depths of them, but the wise will sit and consider and behold. And so I pray now by the power of your spirit that you will allow us to behold the coming of our king in all of his majesty and humility brought together. Unlike any other king, would we see him and bend the knee today to serve him. So we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let earth receive her king. Well, first thing we probably need to see is this. This king uh, that we have, God himself, is very concerned with your joy. God is very concerned with your joy. Some would say that he is ultimately considered with about your joy, that your joy is his ultimate goal. And some of you go, no, 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 Bill. Salvation is his ultimate goal. Reestablishing heaven and earth is his ultimate goal. But think about this. It says here at the beginning, rejoice gladly and exceedingly in the presence of the king. The coming of the king in the presence of the king will create within everything around this king joy, exceeding, triumphant, inexpressible, extemporaneous, pronounced joy. And so what God is saying this morning is this, I am the kind of king who cares about your joy. 
And as he sit there like this, hearing me, he's going, no, really, I'm concerned about your joy. I'm concerned that you would see and know that in my presence, if you're a follower of mine, if you're one who proclaims that I am your sovereign and that you come and you're a part of my kingdom and you allow me to rule and to reign in your life, what you will see in your life is a rejoicing of exceeding nature. That it will be spontaneous and natural and it will affect the people who are around you. He says, shout aloud. That word is shout triumphantly. It's a word used of blasting the trumpet sound in victory. Uh, That there is exceedingly great joy in the presence of this king. It is uninhibited celebration and festivity. Last week I said, why don't you practice frolicking? And I saw a couple of great videos and people sent me some stories of their frolicking. This week it's, can you experience joy? And here's your homework this week uh, about joy. Find someone that knows you. Does everybody have someone that knows them? Okay, good. Ask that person. This question, when you think about me, when someone says, describe Bill McCutcheon, does the word joyful come to mind? Do you ever use that word? Be careful for what you may hear. For many of you are going, I am not about to ask him who has why because joy isn't one of the characteristics that you have in your life and if joy again the the fool would say I'm not going to ask the question the fool would say I don't want to know the answer to this they're probably broken they just don't know me they don't know that I'm a complex being they don't know that uh, my moodiness actually is joy they don't know that my melancholy is actually joy. It was just the way my family brought me up. But if they, I mean, they're, they're broken, so I'm not going to ask because I know the answer. I'm joyful, dadgummit. A fool would never ask the question, but a wise person would ask. And if the answer comes back and says, eh, then you have to ask this question. Why isn't there joy? If joy is the natural response of people in the presence of the true king, for people who are being ruled and reigned by him, if I don't have joy, then that must mean something. It may mean that I'm being ruled and reigned by someone or something else. Because if I was being ruled and reigned by the true king, whose presence brings joy forevermore, who comes in and makes all things new and refreshes the Spirit in such a way that it sings with exceeding triumphant expressions of joy and of victory. If that's not a part of my life, so much so that the people who know me best don't use it as one of the top five ingredients. If you're reading the box and it says sugar is the number two ingredient, that means it's really high. So if joy is not some of your top five ingredients on the side of your box, then you have to ask the question, why not? And most likely it means that you're being reigned and ruled by something else other than this true king. And every other ruler, every other despot, every other monarch brings counterfeits but never brings true joy. And so the first thing that you need to see about this God who comes to us is that he's very concerned about your joy. Very concerned. So if you want a second New Year's resolution, besides the fact that you're going to humbly uh, and generously serve within the ministries, and the children's ministry especially of this church, 
And by the way, Andrew was correct but incorrect in this. You don't just have to be able to read. You have to pass a background check. We're not just going to let anybody get to the kids uh, on there. Uh, But besides that, uh, that you come in, I want you to resolve this. This year, I resolve to see joy developed in my life as I pursue the true king. Because remember what we talked about on Christmas Eve. Don't pursue joy, pursue the king. And joy comes. If you pursue joy, then that becomes an end in and of itself. But if you pursue the king, then you get joy thrown in. So the first thing, God is very concerned about our joy. The second thing is this. It seems like an odd statement. The king is coming. It's a declarative statement. The king is coming. That he is coming. That he actually has already arrived, because this was written before Christ came. And so the king is coming. They were looking forward to his coming. We now know that he has arrived, that he established his kingdom here on this earth, uh, and that it is fully established, but it is not yet fully realized, that we're in the time of tension between the already and the not yet, that it is already here and that we are already citizens of it through Christ Jesus, but we're not yet fully realizing it because he hasn't come again, but he will come again. And so that this king is coming, well, it would again, the wise person would ask, What kind of king? What kind of king is this? Well, we know that he's a king in this way, we've already said, who brings joy. He's the kind of king who brings joy. But you see, it was a time of oppression in the land, the rule of foreign and evil kings, and there was no joy. There was only mourning and sorrow and hopelessness. But when this king comes, it says that he brings joy. We also know about this king that it says right here that he is righteous and having salvation is he, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, righteous. The first word indeed is righteous, is just. It implies victory for the oppressed and for the innocent, that he is one who has integrity, that, that he has holiness, that he has something about him. That he is a voice for those who have no voice. That he pursues those who are marginalized. That he is a father to the orphan. That he is the one who says to us, I stand for what is right and true in the world today. That he is coming with this kind of righteousness. What this means is simply this. Then what we currently have in this world isn't righteous. That it's warped and it's affected by the fall. And that the king comes and he establishes righteousness and his citizens and his followers and those who pledge allegiance to him are now walking and marching to a different kind of righteousness, not the righteousness that the world says, but a morality and a beauty and a law and a dignity and an integrity that says, hey, no one else is looking, but I'm still going to live this way. I'm going to stand up for what is right, even at great cost for myself, because I serve a righteous king. And I'm going to live even when other people, I don't get invited to the parties. I don't get invited to do the things. My business isn't thriving quite as much. I didn't make quite as much money this year because I stood with my king for righteousness, which he stands for. And there's this amazing statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who stand for righteousness sake. For what? Do you remember? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You need to know that this king looks for righteousness and he sees and he says, hey, guess what? If you stand with me for righteousness, I'm going to give you the very kingdom of heaven itself. 
because it's a righteous kingdom. This world may not get you. This world may not understand you, and they may ostracize you, but blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed are those who are misunderstood, for I was as well. This is good news, that we have a king who's righteous. And that means this, that his followers are righteous. So ask that same person who is telling you whether they find joy in you, ask him this, do you find in me a righteousness, an integrity, or am I someone who's willing to bend the rules just enough to where it profits me? That I don't mind demanding righteousness from everybody else, but those same rules and laws don't apply to me. That I just sort of look the other way when there's something that's wrong in the world. You see, the righteous king can't look away from injustice and unrighteousness. He looks right at it, and he brings his reign to it. And there is unrighteousness, and there is loss in our world, and those of us who are following the king look at it and say, we want to bring righteousness to them. And it's not through political power. For the next year, we are going to hear from every single candidate and every party that if we follow them, then righteousness will reign and injustice will be taken care of if we put the right people into office. Do any of you believe that? No, of course not. But when the righteous of the Lord stand up and they look at poverty and they say, this is wrong, and they look at injustice, And they look at people who have no parents and children who are orphans and widows who have no voice in our society and the lesser and the immigrant and all of the ones that are here. And they say it is wrong how these things are, not because our culture says they're wrong, but because God says they're wrong. And the righteous stand up with the righteous king. Then the kingdom comes and things begin to change. For this is a righteous king who stands for and those who are righteous. So it's good to know that this king who is coming, he's one who brings exceeding joy. It's good to know that this king who is coming is righteous. He cares about what is right and what is wrong. It also seems incredibly important to know that this king is victorious when he comes. Behold, your king is coming, righteousness and having salvation. That he comes, and this is, again, remember, an oppressed people. They can't get out from under the oppression of Darius the king, under the oppression of Syria and Assyria and of Babylon and all the other oppressors. They can't, on their own, get out from underneath it. And they realize that they have to have a king who's victorious and strong enough to defeat their enemies. You want to know why AA is so unbelievably powerful within the life of an addict? Because of the very first statement that you begin to believe when you enter into addiction care. You say this. I am powerless against my addiction. I am powerless. It has all the dominion over me. That I've given dominion to a plant. That if I am alcoholic, I've given my dominion to a grape. And I've given it to wheat and barley. And I've given it to potatoes. And if I'm addicted uh, to cocaine, and I've given it to a leaf. And if I'm addicted to tobacco, I've given it to a leaf that I am powerless in and of myself to get out from under the control of plants. Oh, how the fall has perverted the order of the world. For the Christian, it's the same way. This only makes sense to us and to you if you're willing to recognize you are powerless to come out from under the dominion of whatever is ruling in your life, sin and death ultimately, 
And look to one who says he's victorious. And look at the language that he's using. In verse 15, he says there, uh, the Lord will of hosts will protect them. And they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. He's saying, I'm the Lord of hosts. Oh, what does that mean? It means this. You can tell Andrew Shank and I really enjoy Tolkien and uh, C.S. Lewis and all because we use the illustrations. But if you've ever read Tolkien and The Lord of the Rings and all the people uh, are lost and they're at Helm's Deep and they're stuck and the battle is going and all of the evil of Mordor is coming against them and they are going to lose the battle. But there was a promise made by Gandalf, the good wizard, that on the fifth day to look to the east in the morning and to look for the riders of Rohan. And he looked up, and all hope was lost. And as they stood there, and Aragorn and all of those stood, and they looked up to the east, and guess what they saw? An army so vast that as it came down into the valley, it decimated all that was evil. That's the picture you've got to see. That it would have to elicit some kind of joy in you to know that God says he's the God and the Lord of hosts. What are the hosts? Many of you hosted a dinner. Is that what he meant? You hosted friends in your family. Is that what he's talking about? No. He's saying, I am the God who leads out all of the hosts of heaven, all of the armies of heaven that are innumerable and cannot be counted. And I am bringing them on your behalf to destroy all of your enemies. And you're hopeless and you're lost and you're out there fighting and you are worn out and you're wearing yourself out and you're wearing everybody else out. And you're looking up and you're going, but God, there are Goliaths in the land. There are giants here. And God says, hey, McCutcheon, that's my last name if you didn't know that. He says, McCutcheon, hold on a second. Turn around. And the host of heaven, in battle array, with all of the spiritual weaponry that can be given to them, are now lined up to come out and to say, McCutcheon, if you'll trust me and you will step aside and you'll let me lead the charge and you'll let me lead the battle, then I'm going to defeat all of your enemies on your behalf. So will you let me, because I'm the Lord of hosts and I hold victory within my hand and it doesn't matter if all of Assyria has the mechanized units and it doesn't matter that all of the world seems to have all of the strength. I'm greater than this world. And Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I'm victorious. Isn't that good news? Are any of you guys facing anything that you yourself have realized you cannot fix on your own? Any of you? I know that all of us. And sometimes why God does that? Some have gone, man, maybe God's a punitive God. Maybe there's sin in my life. I don't know the reason why certain things have happened to you. Or there's things that you are bearing and trying to walk through and you are wrestling with God over But I do know this, that there is victory through faith and belief in him. It doesn't mean the situation will necessarily change, but it means that you can experience joy in the middle of that situation and no longer have to harbor resentment, no longer have to harbor that pain, no longer have to stand there with your hand clenched to your sword, thinking that you've got to fight it, and God is looking at you and going, let me take it. And Christ is looking at you and he's saying, look at my hands and my feet and my side. I took on the enemy. He thought he won, but I defeated him on the third day. I rose again from the dead and sin and death have no no claim on you anymore. 
So if you're terrified of the battle and you're worried about, look up to the east and see not the battle and the riders of Rohan, but see Christ in all of his glory and all of his beauty who says that he's victorious on your behalf. He is the Lord of hosts. Ah, a couple of things quickly as we wrap up. So we've seen that this king who is coming is a king who brings joy, a king who is righteous, a king who is victorious. But then interestingly enough, right there in the middle of this thing, he says he's a king who's coming and he's riding humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This king is also humble and contrite. He's a different kind of king than any other king who's ever ruled in all of history. No other king is like him who is meek and lowly, who is approachable and afflicted just like us. Think of John when he read and wrote in Revelation after what he had experienced. He'd gone into the very throne room of the king and he was hearing all of the hosts singing praises with great joy. Holy, holy, holy is God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And they were circling around and flying around and there was incredible joy. And they're speaking of the Lion of Judah and he looked at the throne to see the Lion of Judah and you remember what he saw? A lamb standing as if slain. He said, what is this? Who is this king that brings together characteristics and traits that have never been brought together in any earthly king? There were plenty of earthly kings uh, who were strong and mighty and victorious, but would they be willing to die on behalf of their people? To give their very lives as a ransom? To come and to look and to say, I am meek and lowly at heart. You'll find rest in me. Christ brings together something that is altogether different from any other kind of king. And I dare you, as the wise would ask, I dare you to ask of whatever it is that you are serving, whoever it is that you are serving, ask of them, are they contrite? Do they put your needs up and above their own? Are they willing to empty themselves of everything else in order to make sure that you come out at the end? He came lowly on a donkey. You read in the Gospels that it was to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah that Christ entered the city that way. But make no mistake, this king who was lowly and contrite and came in on a donkey this time will return again one day. But the next time it will be on a stallion and a steed and he'll be having a sword in his hand. And the next time he says, I don't come to offer salvation, I come to bring recompense and I come to bring justice only. And so the time is now for us to turn to this king who is humbly offering himself to all of those who have opposed him. And you know what we find when we do? When you turn to him and you say, I'm willing to lay it all aside. I'm willing to lay it down and to give my life to you and to serve you, to finally quit all the fighting. You know what you find? And this is the last point. You find that you are the object of his affections. On that day, The Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people for like the jewels of a crown they will shine on his land. God is saying that you are the object of my affection and you will shine and you will glow and you will sparkle and radiate that my kingdom extends to you. The offer of peace is offered 
to you. The offer of his rule is offered to you, but those two have to go together. You cannot gain the peace of the king without also gaining the rule of the king. And for most people, we want the benefits of the kingdom without actually having to obey or do anything within the kingdom. And it doesn't work that way. For some of you raised in church or raised in certain Christian organizations that said there's such a thing as a carnal Christian who says that I can have Jesus in my life, but I'm just not serving him, find that biblically. Jesus says this, if I reign, I reign. If I don't, I don't. But you don't get all the benefits of my kingdom without getting me. And so today I want you to see this. You are the object of his affection. That Christ is being offered to you today if you're willing to bend the knee. Willing to bend the knee. And then finally this. If you do come and you do that, and if you've already done that and you're saying, do that, will you do this? Will you begin to rejoice today? Because I'll give you a little hint. You're going to have to do it for all eternity. You might as well get started today. Practice a little bit. See what it looks like. Because it's going to be the rest of our lives. And it'll be the greatest thing that we could ever experience to come into the presence of this king. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That we know ourselves and we know we're a rebellious lot. We know that we don't like to be ruled. And yet you come and you present yourself as a king. And you don't destroy us now, but you present to us the opportunity of citizenship in the kingdom and that all of our past offenses have been washed away and written away in Christ and canceled upon uh, that cross and that we stand now as perfected citizens of the kingdom of heaven with all the rights therein and all of the privileges thereof. God, would we live as if we're citizens and would we trust in your sovereign reign and would we trust in your hand and would we can quit fighting against you? And Father, would we bend the knee today? There are some here today who are so tired and they need to see the face of a king in all of his strength and glory, but all of his lowliness and his meekness who says, come unto me and I'll give you rest. So Father, would we come and would we recognize this king who was willing to die for me? Oh, amazing love, how can it be? that you, my King, would die for me. To Christ be the glory. Amen. Let's stand and sing.